Welcome to episode seven of Leading Insights. And today we're joined by Kat McCauley. So Kat, could you tell us a little bit about your role? Sure. So I'm the Chief Design Officer um, for Scottish Government's Digital Directorate. And that's um, a fairly new role, I think. Well, in fact, I know for Scottish Government. Um, first time we've had a Chief Design Officer. And really what I'm there to do is, I suppose, a couple of key things. So one of them is helping to introduce the idea of user-centered design, uh, particularly around the design of services, but not exclusively, um, as, a, as one of the ways of working and thinking that we need in government, in a modern government. You know, uh, until, until fairly recently, um, Scottish government in particular was a fairly benign kind of a government in the sense that it didn't tend to directly deliver many services to, um, to, to its people. It, it outsourced the delivery of most services. And so it was really more of a sort of policy um, generating uh, uh, organization. And uh, that changed a lot with the introduction of um, a number of the, the devolved powers around things like um, social security, um, uh, tax uh, generating powers and so on. And so suddenly we had to learn how to design and deliver services ourselves, as well as think about you know the, the role of policy in directing the design and delivery of services elsewhere. So I was brought, brought in fairly early on as one of the early sort of batch of designers coming in trying to help out with this and um, took responsibility for growing that as a, as a sort of a community, you know, practice community, but also a professional community, but also for helping to think about what bits of design that, that you know, design methodology that were largely developed in the private sector, what bits of those are really relevant for, for government, what bits are, are less relevant, and how do we combine the kind of drive for participatory democracy that is, you know, quite embedded in the heart of Scottish Government with design and design thinking as a tool set and a way of approaching um, service delivery in particular and bring those two things together and really drive them into the heart of government effectively. So I've been doing that for about five years now, I think, which astonishes me, but there you go. I know, time flies, doesn't it? it does. and, <laughs> and tell us a little bit about your career journey to get to there. How did you start out? The first thing I would say is I've never considered myself to have a career journey. It was a decision I actually made very early on when I was a teenager, in fact, because I, I read a, I read in a book, as you do when you're a kid, I read in a book something about the um, uh, Native Americans of Vancouver Island in Canada and um, having a saying about, yeah, you know, which basically amounted to you better do uh, you better do lots of interesting things in your life, otherwise you will be very boring when you're old and telling stories around the campfire. Who knows how true that is or if it's just apocryphal. But anyway, it impacted on me. And um, uh, so I, I sort of meandered through most of my 20s and early 30s, not really thinking particularly about what I was doing, other than following my nose around things that interested me. So I Started out as you often do, doing all sorts of, you know, juggling three jobs and restaurants and nightclubs and things like that. And um, uh, I set up a cafe in Edinburgh. I fell into doing that. It was the first um, LGBT-owned and run cafe in Scotland in the in the kind of um, towards the end of the eighties, the nineteen eighties. Um, I uh, meandered out of that and into a job in uh, news monitoring for one of the Maxwell Corporation companies, which was entertaining uh, in the late, late 80s, early 90s. Um, meandered out of that into working in um, international aid uh, during the Balkans War. Um, meandered out of that into um, a number of other kind of roles in the, in the community sector. And then eventually ended up um, running a, um, 
small company doing um, information systems development and design whilst studying for a master's and a PhD. And then eventually that led me into becoming an academic and then eventually that led me into becoming a consultant in industry and then that led me into Scottish government. So it's not really been a career path, it's been a career meander. Yeah. Um, but the common thread, I think, in all of them, when I look back, has been design. You know, I've had a, I've had an interest in how we solve problems well, and uh, and how we build the solutions to those problems well, uh, from very early on. And that is that is a thread I can see in my career, um, such as such as it exists from the earliest days. Yeah, and it, it's got used to the. Um, I love your job title. That's my favourite job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> me too. It's fantastic. Yeah. What, what sort of challenges have you experienced across those different roles? Um, so, it's, so I mean, I, I suppose I should contextualise by saying I'm, I'm, I'm getting on a bit now. So I'm in my 50s and I left uh, school and then university in the mid 80s, uh, straight into the teeth of um, one of the big recessions um, back then. And... Um, came from uh, you know well I, for, I suppose most of the challenges that I've, I've faced in my career are more to do with who I am than anything um, uh, particularly to do with the jobs themselves because you know I've, I've never really fitted in the world you know I was as a kid I was definitely odd I was very very tall um, I realized quite early on that I was gay um, and that had a huge impact so you know first of all before I came out in, in the, my ability to live in the world. And then after I came out, you know, for quite a long time, it did impact my job choices and my job opportunities. I still lived during the era when things like Section 28 were in force. And, um, you know, when we ran the cafe, it, you know, it was a time when gay rights just weren't um, understood or accepted in the way they are today. I remember being involved in one of the first demos in Scotland um, against Section 28, and it's hard to remember, but this was before Pride happened. You know, there was no Pride back then. Um, and there was about six of us standing on Princess Street on a Saturday, uh, chanting about um, gay rights and, you know, facing the kind of horrified looks of the passers-by. And I remember going for jobs. And when I, you know, I always made a point of coming out in jobs because I just sort of thought, I don't want to have to work somewhere where I can't be out. And, you know, you would see right away on their faces that that was it, you were out of the you were out of the running or I would, when we were setting up the cafe and we went for a loan and, you know, we went to several banks to try and get a little startup loan, which was quite normal back then because it was, there was another recession happening. So there was quite a lot of um, support for small businesses starting up and, you know, literally being told we, will, we won't fund perversion um, and shown the door, you know. So it, so that impacted on a lot of my early experience of, of work. You know, I always sought jobs where I could be comfortably out and, you know, in many ways, that was that was really helpful and good because, because it did allow me to to live openly. But at the same time, it did absolutely limit the things I could do. Um, later on, you know, that sort of started to flatten out a little bit, but not entirely. And um, uh, but then in my uh, very late twenties, I was diagnosed with MS, and that again was another complete change for me because suddenly I was, you know, looking at a, a life was something that I hadn't really anticipated having to deal with. And at that time, certainly, um, you know, the kind of the standard um, kind of medical response to a diagnosis with MS was, you know, uh, don't, don't exercise, don't have any children, um, you know, prepare to retire, you know, and I was 29 at that point. So, uh, and there was very little support, very little advice on how to manage it in your career. So, you know, I, 
I knew right away I needed to jump into a career that had a pension because I didn't have a pension. Um, so that's why I started the journey towards becoming an academic. Um, and that's actually driven me ever since is just holding on to a pension of some kind. But as I said, most of the career choices that I've made have been driven by that desire to do something uh, interesting and not to be constrained. So I've had this kind of weird tension between living in a world that doesn't accept me or that makes life really difficult for me and having something, you know, laterally having something that made life difficult and then that desire to just do something interesting. So I've never had a job where I've felt morally compromised. And if I ever do get to that point in any job, I walk away and have done. Um, I've always believed that, you know, I should have work that is meaningful and makes an impact on the world and that challenges me to, to do things that I wouldn't normally be necessarily comfortable doing as well. I've always had that drive. Um, and overall, now that I'm in my, you know, in my 50s, I'm looking back on it. And I'm still looking ahead, but, you know, I'm largely looking back. Um, I'm really glad I made those choices. I'm glad I lived in a time where it was kind of acceptable to opt out of the career thing because I've got teenage children and, and I see um, I see that not as an option for them in, in the way that it was for us. You know, it was fairly common for people not to want or have a career when I was young but now I can see there's a huge amount of pressure and it starts much earlier I mean I went through most of my school nobody really ever talked to you about your future or your career there was just a sort of you're either going to university or you weren't and if you weren't you were going to go to the army or get a job in the local dairy or get pregnant if you were a girl and that was about it um, whereas you know my kids grew up in a time when there was just a really strong focus on how important it was to you know have some kind of career um, and I'm not necessarily sure that that's as healthy for them as I would um, wish although I'm certainly glad that they have their ambitions set a bit higher than we did when we were kids. Kat you speak very passionately about promoting accessibility and equity how mm. has living with MS influenced the kind of leader you've been, become? So so I mean like everyone your your history your life um, impacts your your beliefs and your values and the way you approach the world and you know as somebody who has never been made fully welcome in society initially because I was, uh, you know, was gay and and more latterly because I'm disabled. Um, I think it has left me with a real sense of responsibility to use whatever power or opportunity I have to advance equalities and to think about the impact of inequalities and injustices on the life opportunities of people. Um, so that has always drawn me to looking at you know how are we working in ways that exclude people what can we do to be um, improving our ability to include a much wider range of people um, and it's it's given me I suppose a sensitivity to my own biases and my own weak spots and areas where my own life experience hasn't informed things as much so one of the things I often say to to people about being disabled and working is that it's very easy to get lulled into the trap of thinking you speak for all disabled people um, and I don't you know and and so my experience of disability has a very profound effect on my life every day of course it does but um, you know it doesn't it doesn't sort of somehow license me to speak for everyone else who has different kinds of impairments that impact impact on their lives in different ways so I think getting that balance right has always been important and the older I get uh, the more the more I realise how hard that is. Um, so I spend quite a lot of time now working with um, colleagues and mentoring other people who are 
um, if you like, the in the current jargon, we, we, we talk about lived experience. But, you know, if you have lived experience but are working in a professional capacity in a space about that lived experience, then how you manage that and how you juggle that with, the, you know, the professional and the lived experience part of your of your identity, it, it's a real challenge and it requires thought and hard work. It's not something you can just assume you have a certain moral authority because you happen to be disabled or you happen to be gay or a woman or whatever. You have to work at it. Um, and so I think I think it's not necessarily my own experience that's refining that now, but just that sort of as I get older, that awareness of the problematic nature sometimes of some of these things and how important it is to be reflective and thoughtful and to check yourself uh, on a regular basis. But equally, it has meant that, you know, frankly, I, I just will not shut up when there's an injustice around me and, um, you know, do feel a moral um, obligation to to do something about it and to speak up, uh, even when it's not necessarily comfortable for other people around me. How, how do you think that we can help people talk more openly and candidly about improving accessibility and yeah 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 i think i think it's really hard and i've i've wondered for a long time why it's so so difficult because when i was younger and i was hugely involved in gay activism and you know it was a very difficult time when, you know we, we we did live in a very different world when i was coming out and and i've often reflected on the difference between my experience of that and my experience now as a disabled person where you know in many ways you sort of think well we're a much more evolved society aren't we so why is it still so hard and I, you know, I think there's something kind of quite elemental that we might have to be honest about, which is the fact that disabled disability, disabled people make able-bodied people feel really uncomfortable. And, you know, if you are in, encountering some somebody who's, particularly when the impairments are visible, but even, even when they're not, if you're talking about that with somebody and you, you don't have that experience yourself, you're caught between the desire to be a good person, which most of us have. So very few people would ever like to consider themselves as ableist, for example. And yet there's also a kind of elemental thing inside all of us, which is we don't like anything that reminds us of sickness and death. And that's kind of an understandable, normal human reaction in some ways. You know, I'm sure some somewhere back down you know, in that old brain or whatever it is, there's a bit of us that is naturally inclined to turn away from um, sickness and death, and so I think there's I think there's a, a need to try, try and acknowledge that. I think secondly, there's such an anxiety nowadays about words in particular um, that wasn't necessarily there when I was younger, and we were, you know, getting early involvement in gay activism. I remember being quite shocked a wee while ago when I was talking to some younger uh, LGBT people who were struggling a bit with the fact that I identify as queer. And, you know, for them, there was something difficult about that language. Whereas when I was, you know, a younger woman growing up as a lesbian, I, I liked the word queer. It appealed to me and I used it a lot. And so did many of my friends. So there's something about the way we we're anxious about language nowadays that I think is also making it really hard. So for me, one of the most important things is just to be honest and talk and create the conditions within which you say it's OK to use the wrong words or say the wrong thing. Um, and I, I often do that by just acknowledging, acknowledging that I do that myself as well. You know, I'll stumble over words when I'm talking to somebody with a different kind of experience of disability. I'll stumble over words when I'm talking about um, issues to do with race equality. Um, so, you know, I think I think that openness about the fact that these things are not necessarily easy to talk about. It's important to get out on the table 
And then after that, I think it's important to be more focused on what is it we're trying to do than the words we're using to do it. Um, because again, for me, you know, we can spend a lot of time talking about words and nothing changes. And actually what changed for us in the gay community was, you know, years and years of just reminding people that we had rights and we were human and that the way we were being treated, if it was done to anyone else, would feel really unfair. And I think that's the same thing for disabled people. You know, it's the constant reminding people that it's just not okay that it's 2020 and disabled people still have to wet themselves on trains because there's no accessible toilet. You know, and that I think for most people, it's just something we don't face into very much. We don't think about it very much. And I think we do need to shock people out of that complacency, but equally we need to not be punitive about language because otherwise we will never get to the point where we can start to unpack the problem and start to solve it together. During your time as Chief Design Officer, what have you seen work really well in Scotland to, to improve equity? So I think um, I think the, the, the sort of rapid growth really over the last few years of a recognition of how important it is to engage um, people in designing the services that they need and use. There's always been a bit of that and certainly in certain areas like community empowerment that's been a much more prominent feature of how people have worked for a long time and there's lots we can learn by looking at that but when it came to things like designing the social security system for Scotland or um, uh, introducing um, uh, changes to the way independent the independent living fund work you know bringing bringing people who live day to day with those challenges right into the heart of that design decision making from from the earliest places and trying to get better at doing that and I think that's the crucial thing is we're not just trying to do it and tick a box and walk away. We're trying to do it and committing to getting better at doing it. Um, and it's not consistent. It's not everywhere. And there's still lots of pockets of bad practice. But there is a real commitment to, to understanding that it's important that we get better at this. And for me, that's the bit that gives me the most encouragement and hope. Not the fact that we do X, Y or Z, but the fact that we do believe, A, it's important and B, that we're not good enough yet. And <laughs> we need to get much better. So for me, you know, that, that drive certainly within government has been really important and I can see um, the ways in which that kind of thinking is really starting to come to the fore in in all sorts of parts of, of the sort of public services world in Scotland so it's not just in SG it's it's in local authorities you know if I look at the work of for example the local government digital office in really sort of pushing and promoting service design and getting a community of people talking about it engaging with it trained in it you know getting those ideas into the everyday culture of organizations you know that's been incredibly powerful same things happening in the nhs as well and you know lots of public bodies engaging with this so i think it's that we've moved beyond thinking it's a thing we have to do and tick a box and we're in the point of thinking we don't we don't question anymore whether or not we have to do it, but what we do question is how we're doing it and are we good enough yet? And I think that's hugely important and encouraging. On a sort of individual level, do you think, is there any one thing that you think that we could consider or or actively do to promote equity? Yeah, one thing um, that we could all go out tomorrow. Yeah, well, the one thing that I've always thought works really, really well, and I would say this wouldn't I, because I'm you know I come from a design background and anthropology training and so for me um opening your eyes every day is really really important and we just don't do it i mean one of the things i quite often use when i'm talking about particularly about accessibility and inclusion is that you know around one in eight people in the country is in a wheelchair at any one point in time and we don't know that we don't see them 
in the streets and in the shops. Well, I mean, at the moment, we don't see many people, but, you know, in normal times, that wouldn't be at all obvious to people in the UK. I spend a lot of time in Germany, and in Germany, it is obvious that lots of people are in wheelchairs because you do see them in public much, much more than we do here. You see them working in shops and you see them in, on public transport and you see them in the street in a way that I'm always struck when I come back here um, that I just don't see. Uh, and I think it is that just trying to open your eyes and keep your eyes open during the day and thinking about how many women are in this room, how many um, uh, black or ethnic minority people are in this room, how many disabled, visibly disabled people are in this room. It's always difficult, of course, because there are people with invisible disabilities as well. But, you know, how many are here? Who's making the decisions in the room and who's not? You know, it's that eye-opening thing. I think that all of us can do, and we just don't. We really don't. We walk through the world almost oblivious to, to the challenges that other people face. And there's probably some good, you know, self-preservation reasons for some of that. But, you know, we are modern industrialised economies. We don't need to be too worried about being chased by a lion every day as we go foraging for food. We can afford to spend some of our time with our eyes open um, and thinking about and looking at engaging um, with the world around us. So I think that for me is the single most important thing anyone can do. And, you know, I know certainly, you know, obviously as I was, when I was younger and I was coming out, I was incredibly aware of challenges that women and gay people faced in society. I was much less aware, I fully concede, um, that all the challenges that um, disabled people faced. Although I do have to say, you know, it still astonishes me because I remember back in the 80s, we would be organising events and, um, you know, we ran a, a thing in, in Edinburgh called the Lark in the Park. It was one of the first big gay festivals that happened in Edinburgh, the Ross Bandstand in the, I think it's about 87, 88, something like that. You know, we had signers, at that. we hired signers at that meeting. And, you know, every meeting we ever did, there was always somebody hired to be the signer there. There was always a crash. There was always a note going out asking people who might need the support to ask um, to ask us to provide that for them. Uh, and I was really kind of struck as we went through the 90s and the early 2000s that that fell off completely, you know, to the point now where it's noteworthy if somebody puts on a signer at an event. And I don't know why that happens, but it did. So I think that thing of just being aware, being keeping your eyes open and being thoughtful about uh, asking those questions of yourself, you know, because if the, the trouble is that if you're in a room and everyone looks and thinks and speaks broadly like you do, you don't notice because that's normal to you. Um, and you have to consciously make yourself notice when you're in a room full of people like you and try and understand and think about you know, who's not here and why. It's very easy for us all to think we're all, you know, quite well evolved now. And look, we've got equalities and, you know, we've got this and we've got that. Um, and if you're in the kind of powerful minority, frankly, in society where you don't have to worry about these things, then it probably feels pretty good right now. You probably feel like you're quite a nice person. You probably feel like you're doing OK. You know, we're being pretty nice about all this stuff. Um, and it's only when you consciously engage with people who don't live in that quite narrow minority of you know, basically straight, white, middle-class people, that you that you start to see the world through someone else's eyes. And that is one of the hardest things for any of us to do. But the first thing you have to know is that the world is different <laughs> for, for other people. And, and, you know, I think the, the biggest thing I've always really been struck by, having spent my entire adult life not fitting in, not being acceptable in society for one reason or another, is that, there's a level of kind of daily 
I think we use the jargon nowadays, microaggressions, but there's this kind of like daily grinding down of you that happens when you look like that. But, but it's very, it's it's not easy to um, to understand if you haven't experienced it. But people really, if you're lucky enough not to live in one of those categories, not to be one of those people, then you really do have a moral obligation to keep your eyes open and think about these things and be conscious. Have you had um, an inspirational mentor? Yeah, I've had loads, actually. <laughs> actually, And I suppose that's one of the other useful things that I kind of stumbled on quite early on was how important it was to have um, people that you could seek counsel from and and be honest with as well, ask hard questions of, and they would ask hard questions of you. So, yeah, I've had lo- lots of, of different uh, people, I suppose, that would have filled that role. I think probably the the most influential was, a, was an uncle of mine, actually, who was a documentary filmmaker and travelled around the world. He was the, you know, him and his film crew were the only non-Polish film crew in the in the solidarity uh, strikes uh, in Poland um, in, the, in, the, in the yards in Poland when the solidarity strike was on he knew Steve Biko in South Africa he was arrested in just about every country you can imagine during all the various conflicts in Afghanistan in Iran and Iraq during the 80s 70s and 80s you know he was a quite incredible uh, character and um, you know for somebody like me from a fairly small town pretty limited little worldview he was a real eye-opener but the thing that he always said to me was just always look for the questions no one's asking and then ask them and also ask yourself why no one's asking them um, and that was one of the best bits of advice I ever had in my life um, and a bit later on I, I've had a, a fantastic mentor in, in the US called Susan Dre who was very heavily involved in the development of a field called human computer human computer interaction and um, I suppose was one of the first people that really engaged the idea of studying human beings is really important if we're going to design technologies that work well which in the 80s and 70s 70s 80s early 90s was not a given you know people still thought that human beings were similar to computers we were information processing machines and you could study a human in the same way that you would think about a computer working and the whole idea of you know, the richness and diversity of human experience and human culture and how challenging it is to design for that wasn't at all obvious. And she was, you know, amongst another, a number of other women in, in the States in particular, one of the people that really brought that idea to the fore. And she's always been a huge inspiration to me as well. So, but I mean, you know, I've sought the counsel of people constantly all the way through my, through my life. And I think that is such an important thing to do. It sounds like the words of your uncle have sort of set the tone for your... Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and it's the only, you know, I said, you know, ears and eyes open, ask questions, be awkward. Um, You know, I was really struck listening to a lot of the memorials for for John Lewis, a civil rights activist who died a few days ago and was buried at the weekend, I think. Um, You know, and his, his kind of basic mantra was just, you know, if you see something wrong, then, you know, stand up and be awkward, you know, get in the way, push for change. And, and I think I think a lot of that's to do with asking questions of yourself and of others. A lighthearted question to finish up on, Kat. <laughs> we ask everyone this and it's in another life, what if you hadn't taken your particular life path, what, what else would you have liked to have been? Oh, I can answer that in, in, a, in a heartbeat. I would have been an opera singer. I just love... I love music, all music anyway. And weirdly, given when and how I grew up, um, I was I was introduced to opera by a very 
astute uh, teacher when I was a kid in school who realized that I, I liked music. I was really into punk in particular. I was, you know, I grew up in, in, in the early days of punk and hooked onto that very, very quickly. And this music, this teacher was trying to get me interested in stuff beyond my immediate world. And, and he, um, he played me some Handel um, Baroque music, um, a couple of arias, and they were very, very, they're really loud and intense and like punk. I remember thinking, God, this is like listening to punk. Uh, and I just got hooked on it really early on and um, was very lucky. I was a student in Edinburgh during the 80s when the, um, the Edinburgh Festival used to sell or give giveaway tickets for performances at the end of the day if they hadn't sold out. So, you know, got to see a huge amount of incredible stuff um, that I'd never would have been able to afford to see other ones. And yeah, I've just been obsessed with, with music and particularly with, with opera and particularly with Baroque opera. And I, I deeply admire anybody who can stand up there on a stage and make that absolutely transcendental sound with just their vocal cords and their throats and their hearts and their souls. So yeah, I'd, I'd have been an opera singer for sure. Yeah, if I'd, have one to, of, I'd have to have not been tone deaf, so that would be the yeah. <laughs> It's definitely one of the talents I think I would have most liked to have, just to be able to sing, not even opera, just just even yeah, string yeah. together. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I think it's, it's, and just watching somebody perform like that and being in the same room as a singer singing like that with a full orchestra is just incredible. It's something I wish, I wish it wasn't such an elite thing here in the UK. It's not in Germany, funnily enough, where it's much more normal for normal people to go to the opera and it's cheaper as well. But unfortunately here, it's definitely something that's associated with being a bit posh and um, mm-hmm. it's something to be a bit embarrassed of, you know. Whereas um, actually when you go and you hear a great singer performer, particularly, you know, great opera, and then it's something to behold. I'm going to have to go and listen to some Baroque opera because I don't really know what that is so I'm gonna go find out more <laughs> go yeah get yourself some handle get stuck in <laughs> yeah 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 um, yeah and if you get great. a chance to go then you know definitely for sure great well it was lovely talking to you and really really inspiring and I'm sure our listeners are going to learn loads thank you so much, thank you so much you're totally welcome see you bye, bye.